The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop looking for cracked software signatures and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Jeff Maciolix, here to announce show number 89 with guests Don Box, Ted Neward, and Mark Pollock, recorded live Monday, November 15, 2004. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet, ASPNet, and C-Sharp classes online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASPNet web applications, online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine. Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who can't believe the heavyweights he's interviewing tonight must be the absence of Kirk Webb, Carl Franklin. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? Yo 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 yo. Hey, this is Carl, and uh, you're listening to .NET Rocks, the Internet Audio Talk Show for .NET developers. Uh, my friend, my partner in crime, Rory Blythe from Portland, is not with us tonight because of scheduling mix-ups. We spent last week in Las Vegas, as you know, and I got back 15 minutes before we were to, to record Mondays. And as it turned out, we couldn't get, I couldn't get back here in time to record .NET Rocks. So, and also, as you may know, Rory is sort of uh, locked in to only being able uh, to do the show on Friday night. So he's off doing his job somewhere. And it's a shame, too, because we've got some real heavyweights, as Jeff said, on the show today. Um, Don Box just happened to be around, and Ted and Mark were scheduled to talk about Java. And uh, Ted sent Don an IM, and he's going to join us. So um, I'm going to let you read their bios on the website and just introduce Don Box, Mark Pollock, and Ted Neward. How are you guys? Good. How are you? Great. Excellent. Awesome. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I sense a small escalation here. <laughs> I, I am severely outclassed here tonight. So, you know, knowing not much at all about Java, I'm just going to basically let you guys talk. And, and somebody, this all started because somebody suggested I get Mark on, um, who's a partner at Code Street. And uh, to talk about the the things that are happening in in uh, in the Java world because there's some really really interesting things going on, and uh, I called up Ted to see if he wanted to uh, join the conversation because you know he sort of does a good job of bridging the .NET and Java world with us, and of course Don just happened to be hanging out. So 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 I guess Mark, we should we should start with you. What is this new cool stuff that 
that you wanted to talk about in the Java world? Well, actually, it's a, <clears throat> a port. Uh, it's really the .NET world. It's a uh, conversion of a popular uh, Spring framework to .NET. And so it's really, I guess, the crossroads uh, was sort of the uh, interesting uh, topic of uh, seeing how some ideas from uh, a popular open source uh, Java project translate uh, into uh, .NET. So for the .NET programmers who never heard of Spring, let's define what that is. It's an application framework, basically, that um, has uh, many layers of functionality. At its uh, most base layer, there's a, a basic lightweight container, as they call it, which is sort of a uh, glorified object factory that creates objects for you, configures them, resolves dependencies between different objects. But uh, then on top of that, Spring offers... Um, Things like um, AOP support for doing AO, uh, uh, abstract-oriented programming, mm -hmm. uh, various helper classes for uh, helping the EJB development, mm -hmm. and uh, sort of a whole slew of uh, transaction management facilities. So mm -hmm. in some sense, there's a lot of the same stack that uh, people find in EJB that they could use in a sort of a la carte manner uh, with these higher levels of uh, functionality that the Spring Framework offers. So, Ted or Don, have you guys heard of this uh, thing, the Spring.net, the .NET version here? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, Rod Johnson, the guy who invented it, was at the uh, the server-side symposium in uh, 04 back in May. And, uh, you know, basically, to a large degree, Spring has been kind of a reaction, almost a rejection of the EJB and, and you know, the complexity therein, because a lot of Java developers are not building you know, these super high-end, high-scalable systems. A lot of these guys are trying to build, you know, systems that are intended for 100 to 500 concurrent users, and, mm -hmm. you know, we'd like to develop them in a time frame that doesn't measure in years and so forth. And that's kind of where, you know, the Spring stuff started from. And it's been interesting to watch because, you know, Don may disagree with me, but to a large extent, the .NET uh development enterprise you know community seems to have grown from the we want to start from the departmental project and grow into the large scale enterprise project where the J2E guys seem to be going the other direction. And it's kind of fun mm -hmm. to watch these two environments sort of you know at this point they're they're on a head on collision course for one another at some point somewhere in the middle. So it's gonna be interesting to watch. Yeah, I mean um what I add to it, yeah, it's exactly right that uh, if you look at uh building an application using uh, Spring, it more closely resembles, uh, you know, what sort of uh, facilities there are in .NET than uh, it does in EJB application, at least before uh, the EJB3 uh, specification came out. Hmm. Yeah, even there, I mean, once EJB3 ships, you know, I don't think it's really going to change much for your average uh, Java developer because all they're really doing is just... Right now, when you write an EJB app, Carl, you... you uh, you know how, for example, like when you build a Complus app, you use the uh, attributes and IDL to indicate transactional affinity and so forth? Uh -huh. Well, we didn't have any such facility in Java, right? Remember, we just recently defined custom attributes for Java, which is actually how Mark and I met, because he took mm. over the open source project that I'd started to do that. Mm. Wow. And so that's what you know the 175 JSR was about. Yeah, anyway. I got involved in uh, Spring because they wanted to use uh, the attribute support that I had developed. Right. So basically, as, you know, in order to be able to do that equivalent, you had to write this rather hideous-looking XML file called a deployment mm -hmm. And what EJB is 
EGB3O is basically trying to do is make those XML files go away in favor of using, you know, as Complus has been doing all these years, uh, use custom annotations, custom attributes to capture some of that stuff. There's a few other things, but that's like the big thing, and you know, that's why a lot of Java developers are are you know interested in following the EGB3O release. So, Don, what's your exposure to this uh, to Spring and and or Spring.net? Well, I, I certainly have been observing the phenomena. It's it's uh, pretty fascinating to watch the uh, reaction to the heavier weight containers. I'm I'm not really sure what role these things play on the .NET side. Although I think it's great, people are you know doing the thought experiment, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think people pay attention a lot to the uh, enterprise service aspects of Spring, but those are really the highest levels of the uh, application framework. You know, at its heart, there's just a, a very simplistic, uh, not even simplistic, but a very simple, conceptually simple object factory, which really is more reminiscent of, you know, traditional, you know, abstract factory you might read about in, uh, you know, Gang of Four or whatever. And there's a lot of value to that just to support, you know, basic old concepts like separating, you know, inheritance, I mean, um, interfaces from implementation and so on. And it really ends up, you know, structuring application and giving you flexibility and pluggability in ways that, you really wouldn't have been led down that path before if you were just left to your own devices. Being left to your own devices, I suppose, is what the experience of most Java programmers is, isn't it? Because there, you know, there isn't a, a base class library. That's a sort of a standard, right? I mean, I know my brother's a Java programmer, and we sort of compare notes once in a while. And uh, he's he's using you know Pojo, plain old Java objects, where developing every line of code, you know, from from the ground up, you you find a lot of developers have gone that way. Well, you got to remember, Carl, that you know the Java community does not have you know one large one IDE that everybody uses. Right. So we have to be somewhat careful in terms of what degree of support do you want. Now, at the same time, right. Ted, uh, I, I should correct you. There are people who don't use Emacs on this platform. <laughs> <laughs> it is not a monoculture. There are a few people who use other alternative IDEs, but yes, you're right. The majority of us do use Emacs. Well, I still recall at, uh, I think it was PDC yeah. a number of years ago when Don <laughs> was first introduced and Don stood up and uh, fired up the, uh, fired up his, uh, what was it, Cygwin shell? Or were you on a Mac at that point? <laughs> oh, I don't even remember. Room's going, LS, LS, is that a new command in the command shell? Uh, well, it looks like it's doing a dir type yeah. thing. I had to explain dir to a student today. It was heartbreaking. Sure. <laughs> anyway. So anyway, I mean, just the, the 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 Java community, right? Is so it's so anarchic, right? It's almost you know organic in its sense that you know we do have some higher order tools and utilities and so forth. Remember, MS Build was basically considered a clone of Ant, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which of course grew up in the Java community because we discovered that Make just doesn't cut it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been a lot of cross pollination back and forth, which is good. But the thing that the Java folks don't have in some respects is any sort of you know, agreement to a certain degree between all these various projects. So you've got four or five of these different lightweight containers that are doing many of the same things that Spring is doing. So trying to get you know, agreement, when you say there's no one base class library, you're right. There's like four or five. And that's where, that's where the fun begins. That's yeah. where you get into the uh, principle of framework right. uh, parallelization. I, I was going to say, do you think that sort of environment yields better results but maybe over longer time, a longer term, you know, sort of where the cream rises to the top. Whereas, you know, with Microsoft, it's sort of, you know, dictated, you know, that we all use the same framework, you know, which is good, I think. 
but I don't have any experience in the other in the other camp. I think it yields a situation where um, it's it's both a plus and a minus, right? There's there's a very old old saying, and I don't know who said it, but there's a very old saying that says your strength is also your weakness, your weakness is also your strength. And I think that's what you get, right? Joe in the Namath, Java world probably. right now, we wrestle with the problem. You know, you get a group of Java guys together, and the first question we have to agree on is what IDE are we going to use? The mm-hmm. second question we have to agree on is what web framework are we going to use? Right. The third question is what, you know, uh, container are we going to use? We just get into all of this, you know, paralysis by uh, framework decision-making that just, you know, you don't see that in the .NET space. At the same time, you know, you start getting into a situation, you start going, gosh, I really wish ASP.NET did X, Y, or Z. Well, too bad. In the Java space, there's probably at least one or two frameworks that does X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And if not, you'll just go off and start your own. Right. Well, nobody's saying you couldn't start your own in ASP.NET either, but... Yeah, I mean, we're uh, one of the developers we work with, uh, Alex, uh, he's uh, developing master page support for use in 1.1. Mm-hmm. But uh, with ISAPI, all things are possible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you just—it's kind of a cultural thing, Carl, more than anything yeah. else. No, I, mean, I hear you. You know, in the Java I, space, I the idea—if I'm going to go, you know—if something doesn't do what I want it to do, I'll go and write something and contribute it back to the community. You know, I just don't see that amongst the .NET developers, you know, that I talk to and hang out with. Now, fortunately, well, some of the guys I talk to, you know, Craig uh, Craig Andera just finished working on FlexWiki, which is a great open source project in the .NET space. But that's like one of a couple dozen in the Java space. There are hundreds, if not thousands. Hmm. Yes, yeah, although, Ted, I, I, I'm remembering back to the old days of the OS2 versus Windows debates of mm-hmm. the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And one of the, the classic uh, um, characterizations was that the reason you had all these, you know, that, that there was so much debate from the OS2 side and the Windows folks you know, nobody would pretty much show up for the debates because, you know, the Windows folks are off busy solving problems. <laughs> and, making money, yeah. Sure. You know, th- there there is something to be said for, you know, people can use the new operator and, you know, if they have to change it, they fix the code and it solves the problem. And sitting around, you know, doing naval contemplation about how to add indirection to new um, isn't something that this culture is as uh, conducive to Unlike the Java world, which is you know just ripe with that kind of uh, uh, experimentation, and as as someone who could just observe it from the outside, kind of like an archaeologist, it's great. Um, I'm fascinated by it, um, but I you know I'm I'm pretty thankful that that uh, you know a lot of people I work with aren't uh, twisted around that particular axle. You wouldn't want to spend the rest of your days sort of. I think a lot of people do this in their own you know, spare time. Certainly, I am right, and so oh, it's sort of an itch that you know people scratch. And uh, I think, as you know, for example, uh, things uh, move on, you know, uh, in, in .NET as well. We'll probably see more of this. It's uh, just been going on, I think, a bit longer in terms of really, uh, you know, community you know, thinking this way. Well, Mark, you mentioned you mentioned a couple things about Spring. Let's uh, dive into that in a little bit of detail. You you mentioned some transaction support. Yeah, in, in the Java world, uh, you know, uh, what you're able to do is really just have you know an abstraction of transaction management, and mm-hmm. you know, in some sense, this is a reaction again to you know the way that things were done uh, in the in EJBs, where people really liked a lot having declarative transactions, yeah. where you can just annotate or using a configuration file, right. you know, saying where you'd begin and, and stop your transaction, but. Um, really couldn't do that, for example, if you're just using plain uh, JDBC mm-hmm. 
uh, as your transaction management, you had to use JTA. And so what this did is, uh, Spring does, is it allows you to plug in an implementation of a transaction manager. You could use just the, very commonly in most applications, you just have one single database and would have no need to use a full-fledged distributed transaction service, but yet you could still get the features of declarative transactions. And yep. if you needed to scale up yeah. for some reason in your, in your application to, to use that facility, uh, you could, and you wouldn't be say, you know, tied in to having to use... Um, That's pretty cool. What were some of the other things, just quickly? That, well, the other uh, thing is, sort of an abstraction of that is sort of AOP in general, where you know, mm-hmm. declarative transaction management is just one particular you know, aspect, one particular you know, uh, custom attribute that... Uh, uh, results in you know that particular behavior of starting right. and stopping a transaction, but you're free to invent your own, such as you know pooling. You might think of all right. the enterprise stuff, but even such you know simple things as um, logging or is po- very popular as well is uh, security. You have uh, okay. want to impose a, a particular security policy on your code. Uh, you can sort of inject, sprinkle around so particular attrib- uh, uh, yeah. pieces of code that uh, you otherwise right. um, would be dependent upon the container to provide a particular implementation of. Attributes are really the big story, then. Uh, that's one way to express it, but okay. the the idea really being that you have the ability to you know, pick a particular place in sort of a very abstract way in your code, saying all methods that you know have this particular signature will have this functionality attached mm. to it. Mm. So, since we've got a live. Uh, developer of one of these frameworks. I, I've had a list of questions I've been dying to figure out. One is, I know that in uh, the interception plumbing we've got around Microsoft, both MTS, Complus, and the context plumbing in the CLR, we have to bend over backwards to make sure that when an object reference is being intercepted, um, floats out in the wild, that we never let raw, unintercepted references get out. With these dependency injection frameworks, how are you guys plumbing it such that naked references don't seep out through uh, by accident. Yeah, the way it works in Spring, I suppose it's different, you know, for example, if you're using Aspect J, but the way it works in Spring is you ask the object factory to create you a proxied instance. Sure, but what happens if I've got, uh, if, if inside of my object, I'm calling to someone that's being intercepted, I call out to someone else, mm-hmm. and I pass my this reference to as a parameter to yeah, someone else? Yeah, that's fine. So how does the guy who I'm passing it to get the interceptor? If, if the object you were passing originally was a proxied class, he just gets a reference to that proxied class. But, but if I'm in an instance method on the proxied class, my this pointer is unadorned. It's unintercepted. It's raw. And if I pass that to someone else, I lose all of these uh, dependency injection features. I guess you the do... point is that this pointer you're passing around is already the proxied class. But at the language level, inside my instance method, the this variable is raw. It's not wrapped. Mark, is this all? Are these all dynamic proxies in Spring? Is that all? Spring is dynamic works? proxies for interfaces, but it uses CGLib for um, classes. So are you you're doing bytecode weaving then? No. Uh, well, it would do bytecode weaving if you wanted to uh, uh, use uh, apply an aspect to a class. But uh, very commonly, you can just you know apply this to uh, an interface. And then you can use Java's uh, dynamic proxy facility, which is very flexible for uh, right. you know, doing this type of thing. The question Don's asking is, okay, so inside the object that got proxy, right, this still refers to that object, not the proxy. Oh, that, that is correct, yeah. 
So then the question that he was asking is, how do you prevent me from returning this from inside the object? Uh, you don't. I mean, I mean you, you, could, you could potentially do that, I suppose. So I guess the answer, Don, is don't do that. Yeah, it seems, it seems like it. Well, wow. We have That's our own, great. We have our own don't do that's in .NET, you know? <laughs> we have a few well, it's ones. one of those things. I mean, you know, the point, though, Carl, is still is still valid, which is to say, you know, this becomes one of those myths, legends, and lore that yeah. developers just have to learn. Right, right. And when you're doing a project that's the size of, you know, Complus or Indigo or something, you know, don't do that just doesn't fly very far. Yeah, there like, were lots of don't do that's in Com, and yeah. we all know how well that worked. Sure. Yeah, there's well, there's dispose, right? We still but have. I think, yeah, I think normally the way you would, uh, I mean, for example, in in the IOC, you know, the way you would configure the application to begin with is that usually all the references you you would have that you'd want to pass around typically would be set through the container itself through its dependency resolution mechanism. But Should it doesn't mean this? there isn't enough uh, rope, I suppose, to shoot yourself in the foot in some way. And really, in, in any sort of technique, you're going to have best practices. Yeah, it's so just like that. there is, you know, for example, in you know .NET remoting or things like that. You you can do things in particular ways that, you know, maybe aren't a best practice. It doesn't mean it, it's, uh, you know, yeah, there, should be there, disallowed explicitly. Yeah, although it, it, there's differences between best practices and will the plumbing actually work. And while there's tons of things you probably don't want to do with .NET remoting, um, certainly the remoting and context plumbing really went to great lengths to make sure that. You know, naked references never seeped out um, for any number of reasons. That's a good point. Yeah. Okay. I mean, wow. It, look it, at the time. It, it, there's no, there's no uh, doubt that that uh, that particular aspect of how well embedded proxies are inside uh, .NET is more well covered and a well hidden or well baked in than, than it is in Java. You see, I think this is one of the interesting things that, that you call out and you look at, you know, just the differences in scope, right? right? Because, for example, for, an, you know, for a container like Spring, I mean, as much as I love Rod and as much as I like Spring, this is still, you know, a very, very small percentage of the overall Java community is using this. Yeah. And at least amongst the, you know, the Spring code that I've seen being used in the wild, that situation just has never come up. Right, where you've written a component that wanted to return and you know wanted to return this, and so these tend to be, let's say, service interfaces to to remote things, right? So usually well-defined boundaries. Sure, but quite often, you know, you'll be in inside of an initialization routine. You want to register with some event handler that's you know ambient in the container or gets passed in. Um, hmm. You know, those things like that show up, but you're right; they're not uh, in your face all the time. Yeah, it, this would probably be one of those subtleties that unless you've gone down that road, like you know, like you have done with with some of the comma com plus stuff, you wouldn't think about it. I mean, I know I wouldn't have thought about it except for you know some of the stories that I've heard floating around, you know, amongst the tribe uh, about some of the old com stuff and the interception marshaling and some of that kinds of stuff. It's like, oh, I know where he's going with this, but it's not something that the Java community has had really any real experience with yet. Well, you know, if I could just play devil's advocate we also have you know release com object that we have to do in .NET, little things like that that we have to sprinkle around which is plumbing code you mm -hmm. know to get the plumbing to work oh no question so you know we have we have our yeah gotta do is it or it doesn't work kind of thing oh don't get me wrong carl both platforms have their yeah. awards it's just that the awards are different 
because of the different experiences of the developers. Right. right. Yeah. So, uh, can I, if I can change uh, change direction here real quick? Do you, do Ted, uh, Don, uh, Mark, any either of you guys ever think that we're ever going to see value types in Java? Yes, there are six of them. <laughs> there are They're now. predefined, and, and you num- can't ever change them. The number yeah. will not decrease. Okay. I, I don't think so. All right. It's hard to it's hard to I mean, think. That's all. a very core language question. Right. Well, and the thing is, Sun has always been very historically reticent to change things about the core virtual machine. I mean, you look at, for example, Java just recently got generics. Well, these are generics purely at the language level, right? So a list of T in Java after compilation, it's just straight list holding, you know, object references. Um, because they didn't want to go through uh, the potential pain and I say potential because I don't think it would have been as bad as, as people at Sun seem to think it would have been, of adding generic types, you know, the bang zero, bang one that we see inside the CLR 2.0 today. Yeah. They didn't want to put that in because they have seven years of history that they need to support at this point. Right. right? That's one of the key differences. At the, in the beginning of a technology curve, you have the ability to do radical innovation. Yeah. By the time you get to this point in the technology curve, you know, seven, eight years deployment is stuff in production. You have to be much, much more careful about changing stuff. Yeah, who knows better than Microsoft? I mean, <laughs> you well, know, yeah, how, I mean, you know, what is it? every eight years or so, Microsoft reinvents a new platform. Right. But they have to be so backward compatible that it slowed the process of innovation. Hence, you know, release com object, as we said a few minutes ago. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, this is you know this. Yeah, is I mean, one that's of those... partially the reason the backlash for for AGB was invented even you know uh, released before there was even you know 1.2 or dynamic proxies, which would have really changed the the, the way it would have uh, appeared, I suppose. Yeah, to a certain degree, but I, I think the largest problem with with EJB and its initial release, Mark, was the fact that they wrote a spec before they sat down to think about how they would do it. Yeah, in that sense, now it's actually uh, the EJB3 actually probably be the first spec that really reflects some real-world experience in terms of OR mapping and uh, configuration. Well, what's the old rule? You never use a technology until it hits 3.0 release. Yeah, well, we have to wait for uh, uh, C Sharp 3.0. You have to admit, though, it's ironic that you know people are excited about EJB3, but at the same time, you're seeing all of this kind of not anti, but you know certainly alternative container stuff, you know, around the same time frame as EJB3 is landing. Uh, I think those people typically sit on opposite sides of the fence, that, uh, it, you know, people who are real, you know, uh, fans of uh, Spring and whatnot, will, I think would say that by the time EJB3 comes out, it might almost be irrelevant because it'll be too long from now. Sure. Well, I think part of the thing, too, is that, you know, there was, there was sort of two concepts wrapped up in EJB that have now started to get teased apart. One was the concept of transactional processing that, you know, EJB sort of highlights at the highest level. But the second was the more subtle concept of containers and being in a, you know, a, a container-managed environment. That was something that was never really talked about explicitly until people started teasing out. And then this, this is basically what Spring and the other guys do, teasing out the idea of being in a container versus just being, you know, something that I knew up and start making use of. And that, I think, it's been very beneficial to people because now they're starting to say, wow, I can get the benefits of container management without having to go down the whole EJB distributed transaction route. This is pretty cool. Hmm. And that, I think, ultimately benefits everybody because 
in many respects, that's what Complus was about, and that's what uh, you know Indigo seems to be about going forward. You know. Yes. Sometimes, though, I think, uh, at least from my perspective, from you know porting over uh, uh, Spring to uh, dot, you know, Spring Java to Spring .NET, is that mm, the, the lowest layer really just is basic object factory, which, which is where, in fact, you know a lot of people live day to day, wondering about what are the layers inside their particular application, not how does my application interact with another one and another one and the security between them. That the structure that that provides, sort of in the small programming is uh, you know, very beneficial and almost, in some sense, you know, this, this is why I see value in you know, Spring.net just from the, the, the sort of container point of view. We don't have these features now of you know, declarative transactions, let's say using ADO.net uh, transactions, but yet you can see that your application is structured and is much more pluggable and testable because you can easily swap in and out interfaces mm -hmm. uh, that particular classes use, and th this is really just very valuable uh, this very basic, uh, bare bones, oh, oh, best practice stuff. You know, mother's milk is very hard to disagree with. Mark, where do you see Java going technically in the next five years? <laughs> no, 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 no. Ask him a hard one, Carl. I don't know. I see a lot of angle brackets in my future. Yeah. <laughs> I think to a certain degree, it kind of depends on you know what what stuff in. What stuff that, that's coming out this year or next year or, or last year really sort of sticks with the community and what stuff, you know, the community as a whole just kind of shrugs their shoulders and says, oh, well. I mean, one of the things that I would love to see is some greater XML integration into the language as a whole. You know, for example, I love the fact that Anders is talking about doing, uh, you know, we've got nullable types coming in C Sharp as part of 2.0, and he's talking about doing greater uh, relational style operators and, and integration into the language yeah. for C-sharp 3.0, yeah. because that's going to drive Sun and some of the other uh, vendors in the space to really openly consider the idea of baking relational concepts into this language. Because like it or not, you know, as much as we'd love to talk about language purity, at the end of the day, you know, I have work that needs to get done, and we need to make sure that the tools I use support what I'm trying to do. Everybody's doing relational you know, OR mappings and relational access and stuff like that, you know, the languages should reflect that. The languages should integrate some of those concepts and make it easier for me to get stuff out of a database and put it back. Yeah. And so hopefully, you know, we'll see, we'll see some integration with uh, XML and XML types into both Java and C Sharp, and hopefully we'll see so, the same kinds of stuff for relational types. So, Ted, I'm... It sounds like what you're saying is to know what Java's doing in five years, you should look and see what C Sharp's doing in two. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think to know what C Sharp will be doing in five years yeah. is to look at what Java will be doing in two. So these two, I mean, these two environments are keying off of each other in a major way. I was going to say, where, which is doing more keying? You know, um, obviously C Sharp learned a ton from Java, but uh, you know, does Java, is Java learning from .NET? I mean, the Spring thing is like a an open source project, not not by Sun, right? So this right. is. So is Sun learning anything from, from .NET? Oh, you just have to look at JDK 1.5 to know that the answer there is yes. Okay. I mean, something as simple as you know, the for each loop. Right. We now have a for construct very similar to the for each construct in C Sharp. We now have enumerated types in Java. You know, do, do those mm -hmm. ring a bell? Mm -hmm. uh, Java was the yeah, whole notion of generic. is a big one. 
Yeah, annotations. The whole notion of generics in Java. We've been people yeah. in the Java community have been screaming about generics for the better part of five years. Yeah. And it's not until C sharp starts talking about generics that oh yeah, we're going to factor that into the JDK one five release. Hmm. I mean, cool. You know, that's not revisionist history there. What's that? I mean, I think that you know uh, they were planning generics for quite a while before. Uh, my well, they were, they were talking about it for a long time, but, you know, talking about it and doing it are two very, very different things. Um, you know, the, the thing is just you, you, get into, um, you get into a situation where when does, it, when does it become important to you to spend the time and energy to make this feature work, yeah. right? And that's, that's the thing, right? We've been, we've been talking about generics for I don't know how many years. And only, I mean, ever since JDK 1.0 shipped, it seemed there were people who were out there doing templates in Java. And now all of a sudden, JDK 1.5, you know, here we have generics. You can't tell me that wasn't because .NET all of a sudden started talking about wanting to put generics into, into C-sharp and so forth. I mean, for crying out loud, JDK 1.4, we seem to have time to put the assert keyword in, even though that was something that nobody really seemed to be getting really upset about. Well, arguably, generics is much more difficult, right? Well, okay, but then let's you know let's spend more time getting that one to work. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not going to debate the priorities or things like that. I'm really in no position. I just, I just think that it was, you know, and and it just seems to me that this was this was something that was very clearly driven by the fact, you know, this is what's happening on the other side of the fence, and so therefore we need to. Well, there's a lot of that going back and forth, obviously. Right. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, I just think that both of these environments are going to be keying off of each other for the foreseeable future, you know, for obvious reasons, right? If anyone, right now the industry as a whole is in a mode where if one guy has something that the other guy doesn't have, it's a PR nightmare. So we've got to have that thing. Yeah, okay. Um, gee, I'm almost out of questions here. Um, I'm just so inexperienced with Java, I don't really know what to talk about next. Well, you know, I think one of the questions that frequently comes up when I talk to people about, you know, Java and .NET and so forth is, is there's this, there's sort of this underlying uh, concern amongst both camps, right, of do I need to learn the other environment, you know, in order to remain employable? Yeah. And clearly the answer for .NET developers is no, and clearly the answer for Java developers is no. I mean, you can learn a lot from learning the other environment. But it's not something you need to do to remain employable. Right. It's not going to help your job. Yeah. I mean, like you had said, Carl, C Sharp borrowed a lot from Java and the experiences that Java developers ran into. You know, for example, right, um, you know, on my weblog uh, not too long ago, uh, which Don picked up and used at Uppsala, I had said that object relational mapping is, you know, the Vietnam of computer science. And the reason I said that is because I've watched Java developers over the past decade try one object relational tool over after another, or try to write their own, and just get sunk in this quagmire of work and effort. And, you know, mm. all of a sudden you look around and go, why exactly did we go down this painful road again? Yeah. Yet, the pressure has been in Microsoft for years, for, for a decade, to have some kind of object relational mapping. And thus we saw object spaces sort of poke its head out and then duck back inside the, you know, the big house. Right, right. And I would, I would not be surprised if object spaces never ships. And there's certainly, you know, based on a lot of experiences people in the Java community have had with OR mappers, there's a lot of compelling reason for Microsoft to never ship it. Well, I like the idea of, of integrating it with WinFS just because it's such a, 
it's something that can be so utilized at a very fundamental level. You know what I mean? That that if it's too high level of a tool, I mean, you know what I mean? If it's too too much of a container, if it's too much on the outside looking in, then it, it won't be able to to do the job a hundred percent. Well, are and, you looking for just you know easy persistence, or are you looking for object relational mapping? Both. Those are two I'm, very different beasts. I'm looking at being able to. You know, seeing as how WinFS is sort of the the center of the universe of the of the Longhorn operating system in terms of how data is accessed and, and accessible and, and described, uh, it just makes sense that you know, persisted or not persisted, being able to to integrate the objects of the operating system into an object relational mapper is where I see that WinFS integration really really being fantastic. Problem that I have in general, I mean, just from a purely aesthetic perspective, is that the object model and the relational model are so fundamentally different yeah. that any attempt we have to try to map the two, I think, ultimately is going to yield failure. Yeah. I think if you have a simple enough, been a bit too harsh on, on the mappers. I mean, we use them to you know, quite a quite a good extent, I think, and quite a successful extent in, in mapping a domain model, you know, to, to the database. I, guess, I think from the examples I've seen as well recently, where you have this object data source and doing data binding to a table seems that um, there's more appreciation of having a pure domain model in the uh, middle tier now in Microsoft community than there has been before, where you would pass around data sets, really. Well, but see, here's the problem you run into, Mark. First of all, the atom in an object relational mapping layer, the atom is the object, right? So if I want to pull, some, if I want to pull back a person, right, I pull back a person. And now we get into those gnarly questions of, do I pull back all of the fields of that person or not? Do I lazy load or eager load? If I lazy load, then I have to get I have to go back to the data store each time for each field, or for at least once more to get the fields that aren't there. If I eager load, I'm pulling back a bunch of data that I didn't need in the first place. So let's stick a layer between them. Well, I mean, you, you get to the, you know usually the, the the language that you know the OQL or whatever the equivalent would be would give you the express you know, expressivity to pull in what you wanted just as you would with a normal SQL statement. Right, but what am I what am I coding against? What's the return of that OQL inside my yeah, language? Still a per, yeah, still an object, right? Which is sort of the, the whole point of it, right? Well, but see, the object is what if it's a person type, then the person type has fields. You have to have you know you either have the object or you don't. Well, usually the lazy loading is, you know, related to collections, right? Well, I mean, even just, even just, I mean, collections are where this problem raises its head. But even if I just want to retrieve a person and the person has 50-some-odd fields, do I pull back all 50 or not when all I was interested in is just the guy's first name and last name? Well, you still get to declare that, right, just as you would in SQL. Okay, but... uh, but you keep saying it's just like SQL, it's just like SQL. Why wouldn't I just use SQL at this point? Of course, you don't have to write all that plumbing code yourself to populate the object. What plumbing code? You know, to copy. If you, I mean, there are cases, right, for example, where you don't have a very complex da- domain model, right, where you don't have a lot of inheritance or a lot of you know, strategy patterns or things like this to use to calculate rates or stuff like that. So you know, every solution has, you know, every different solutions require... Different problems require different solutions, but from what I've seen, if you have a relatively you know complex domain model with functionality, not just data, then you can still populate the objects as you want. I don't think it's you know as uh, much of a problem as you say getting these extra fields in that you might not want. You can still you know say you don't uh, load them, 
and in which case you know, those references are null, or they're just you know set to default values that the, you know you would set in the object constructor. But, but you don't have at, to worry about that plumbing code, right? That, but look at how much you're you're bubbling up, how much this mapping is bubbling to the forefront. Right? It's not you're the saying, domain. The, the domain model is completely pure, right? You don't no, see but any it's not. Reasons. It's not, Mark. That's my point. I pulled back a person. This person has a first name and a last name. Mm -hmm. The natural thing to get his age is to say p.age. And all of a sudden, p.age comes back as int min. You're like, what the hell? Oh, that's right. I forgot that when I issued this query, I said in this mapping file, in this descriptor file, whatever, I was only pulling back first name and last name. So why not have an attribute on the properties that says whether the data is loaded on demand or not? I mean, isn't there... Well, again, aren't how Aren't there layers? Aren't there... Because it's not because there isn't a one size fits all answer, right? That's I mean, exactly yeah. the point. You got to insert some intelligence in there, you know, and and have some more attributes on on the fields that you know may be heavy or may not be heavy. Just like the garbage collector, when it looks at an object reference, doesn't know whether it's looking at a five megabyte bitmap or an int. You know, it doesn't. So it. So See, that's exactly to, the point, Carl. Is right. you're making this decision at the person type. And it's going to be used very differently across two different queries, right. where the where the semantics you would want are very different. Right. So, so what is the so what is the solution for that? I mean, is there, uh, you know, are there attributes that you can plop in there and and settings and metadata that you can put in to to uh, to situationally sort of uh, drive the behavior of these objects? Well, again, this is this is where this is where my, the Vietnam analogy becomes so profound. Right, because in the beginning, right, if you recall your history, if in the beginning, Vietnam was just a place where we had sent you know a bunch of advisors, and that was it. And had we, you know, had we stopped there, Vietnam would not nearly have scarred the country the way it did. But we didn't stop there. We wanted to do more and more and more and more. And all of a sudden, we had a quarter of a million guys on the ground looking around, going, "Why are we here? What's the point?" Etc. This well, is the problem I you get into when you start doing the, the OR mapping and you start wanting to express even you know complex queries. Okay. Right. All right, but let, let's say you didn't. I guess have, so, yeah, that, wait, that, wait, that in my uh, particular you know personal experience in particular well, that hold on, you can hold still on, expose the, uh, the essentially the OQL whatever you want to call it that's particular to the OR mapping tool in a configuration file, and of course you still have to know what your queries are doing, what they're returning. I mean, nothing you know is going to. Remove so, you from that. That's what but I want to say. It's not quite like an OO database mm -hmm. where you have to get at things through navigation, right? Uh, I just, I just want to make this comment, and sorry, I felt like I was buttoning in there too much, but uh, <laughs> um, you, you, what's the difference, Ted? If it's complex, it's complex. If you have to write explicit code to go get the data from SQL Server in a, in one situation, and not write explicit code to go get the data from SQL Server in another situation, what's the why not make that process easier by just adding an attribute here or an attribute there? Do you well, know basically, I have two reactions. First of all, if we all agreed that OR layers would, would solve the easiest 80% or the easiest 50% or whatever that number is, and stopped and agreed to go and write regular SQL and ADO.net to go get the rest of it, right. I would be happy. I would be satisfied. Yeah, but that's I think not that's what a reasonable happens. position. I, I do that's too. That's not yeah. what happens, guys. No, I, I think probably the Java community has been overzealous, clearly, right, in, in the use of, of OR mapping tools. But it doesn't mean it doesn't have its role, right? And, and plain JDBC or plain ADO.net certainly has the, their role as well. Well, see, this is why, for example, in Effective Enterprise Java, uh, there's my one and only book plug for the night. <laughs> um, in Effective Enterprise Java, I say, 
use objects-first persistence to preserve your domain model because you want to see objects and nothing but objects, but then use a relational-oriented model, a la writing SQL or stored prox or what have you, to expose the power of the relational model, right? Because in, realistically speaking, today, as we stand here, businesses want to store their data in a relational fashion. And we have to respect that and we have to honor that. And so you will never, because of the differences between the objects and the relational world, you will never be able to create a seamless mapping. Here's Joel a, Spolsky, no, I'm not right? saying Joel it's on uh, software. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Joel on software nails this completely when he talks about the law of leaky abstraction. And developers don't want the OR mappings to leak, but they do. And so they say, oh, well, we've got to put more smarts into the OR layers. And right. you end up with this disaster. Well, that's a good point. Uh, I'm not so down on uh, OR mapping as you are, Ted, but uh, well, maybe we can we, move on. That's what makes the show interesting, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, Roy Ogborn from the chat room says, CSLA.net, which is Rocky Lotka's framework, right. rec- recommends pulling a lightweight read-only object when you only want, say, employee first name, last name, and when one needs to update employee, say, then a full read-write object is pulled. So, you know, obviously there's... Uh, you know, I totally agree with you, Ted, that uh, in general, and, and Mark, you said it too, developers find a new technology, whether it's inheritance, you know, or uh, whatever it is, and they, they see what they can do with it, and they start building castles in the sky in their minds, and they get overzealous. They they want to get as much experience with it as possible, and so they exercise the piss knot out of it, and usually to the, you know, to the detriment of the project that they're doing this with. Um, here's another one, uh, uh, database table over-normalization, right? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, whole, yeah. somebody went to some seminar back in the early 90s where some guy yeah, said... Norm- normal form working. Yeah, normal- <laughs> normalization is a must. We have to completely normalize our tables, and what started as five tables now ends up as 50 tables, and you do a simple query, and it's too slow. Well, maybe it's because you have 25 joins here, mm-hmm. you know? So, mm-hmm. oh, so I'm not disputing that at, at all. So it's the so it's the nature of the beast of programmers to get a new technology and then go overboard with it. And so I agree with I agree with Ted that you know you you can't look towards any one technology as a magic bullet. You have to sort of uh, temper it. And maybe maybe people are going a little nuts with with ORM. Well, I think I, I again. The, where we got down this this road was because I said, you know, we want to, that the, the .NET community is going to learn from the mistakes of the Java community. And this was one place where the Java community really, really went deep. Right? And also and, part of it was that people were using you know, the EJB spec to, to do uh, persistence, right, which I think was probably a flawed, flawed model, right? And so that um, meant you had to inherit from, you know, various uh, base class objects in Java that, you know, wouldn't work outside the container, mm-hmm. but uh, in some sense, that's kind of what gave rise to these uh, less invasive OR mapping. Well, there was so there is definitely a legacy to learn from, right, in terms of approach to how uh, you can do this that it's you know palatable and not invasive. Mm. Well, that, there's there's a certain the degree of invasiveness that's going to have to happen. I mean, you see it with JDO, uh, you see it with a lot of OR layers where you say to yourself, you know. Um, the, uh, the the whole OR thing was a place where the Java guys went deep. The, the 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 whole I can't test with EJB. That was mostly due to the lack of a lightweight EJB container. And we've since seen you know Open EJB for example has shipped. You could conceivably do testing with Open EJB. So again, I think that what's what's 
what's coming out is sort of this difference between the container managed environment and um, uh, the notion of the EJB API itself. And I think that distinction is an important one. Yeah, some, some things are that clearly I think are, are taking foothold in .NET community that uh, were at least popularized first in the Java community, you know, test-driven development and all that sort of you know, XP-ish, I guess, like stuff of continuous builds. But that's definitely been, I think, a good uh, you know, translation into uh, the .NET world. Yeah. Well, here we go, talking about our favorite guys up there at Data Dynamics, about ActiveReports.net. I was just just teaching uh, in my ASP.NET class this week, teaching somebody the difference between, like, say, CrystalReports.net, SQL Reporting Services, and ActiveReports.net. And uh, the basic difference is with those first two, SQL Reporting Services, Crystal, Crystal Enterprise, you basically have a server dedicated to reports that you're going to be pulling lots and lots of complicated data and serving up to thousands of people. But uh, that's not what Active Reports is all about. Active Reports is about putting the report code right in your assembly, uh, utilizing Visual Studio internally, and uh, being able to provide real cool-ass reports in uh, ASP.NET or Windows applications, Windows Forms applications, and uh, PDF, no problem, HTML, no problem, and the Windows Forms uh, version also has a designer, which is cool. You can let your uh, let your customer design their own and customize their own reports. So uh, Active Reports is made uh, possible by Data Dynamics, of course, which is a great supporter of .NET Rocks, of .NET Rocks the movie coming out soon to a theater near you and uh, we'd like you to go do us a favor and go up to their website to check their stuff out it's at www.datadynamics.com and it isn't going to break the bank either folks it's a very affordable stuff Let me get back to Spring for a second. Uh, if if Spring is is so cool in Java, why does why does the Java community or why does the .NET community need a Spring .NET? Like, why do we need a .NET version of Spring? Yeah, really, what we have right now is just basically this very flexible object factory. Uh, it's a lightweight container, really at its heart. Um, and what this means is that you can just sort of um, apply sort of traditional. Uh, well-respected old principles such as, you know, coding to interfaces instead of to concrete classes. And, you know, this helps in all sorts of ways because it really applies the uh, discipline that you would be lazy to do if you had to code an abstract factory for every particular type that, that existed. Mm. And so when you have a class that depends on particular service, if you expose just the interface, at the end of the day, you really don't care usually how that might be implemented. Maybe it's a web service reference. Maybe it's .NET remoting. Maybe it's a local implementation. Hey, Don, does this sound familiar? Yes, it does. And so what's, <laughs> so what Spring uh, is giving you, really, is basically through its uh, configuration ability of creating objects and resolving their dependencies, just a very 
easy way, essentially, to reduce inter- the cost of doing interface-based programming to you know, almost zero. Mm-hmm. And, for example, I didn't know very much about that re- net remoting probably you know, three months ago. And then I looked into one of the best practices that you should do in uh, .NET remoting if you want to uh, you know, create objects on the client but not ship the implementation, you know, right, DLL right. over there. So, and lo and behold, it was an object factory. Yeah. And so it can provide, you know, sort of very simplistic services there that essentially uh, expose a, a spring factory remotely and uh, as an SOA object and have a return, you know, COA objects. Mm-hmm. Really just helping facilitate a best practice uh, simply because there's a very flexible object factory there. And uh, somebody in the chat room wants you to mention the web features of Spring. Yeah, um, we really haven't uh, done too much. We just Someone just recently committed into CVS, like I said, uh, support for uh, Master Pages style 2.0 programming in, in the 1.1 environment. Right. But really, uh, the core focus uh, right now is okay. making this uh, base object factory very stable yeah. and then moving on to uh, provide uh, AOP support. And the other aspects... Uh, I think we'll uh, feel our way and see what's appropriate. Certainly not the intention to reinvent the wheel, just to, to add value where we can right. in, in you know, small but I think significant ways. There, for example, there are no plans to really introduce a, you know MVC-like framework yeah. uh, into ASP.NET. Okay. So um, where, do you, where do you see Spring going? I mean, how far is this going to go, do you think? Well, I see a lot of... Um, over the world. Over the world. <laughs> going to be everywhere. Well, one interesting thing is that a lot of um, shops that I've um, expressed interest in are already using Spring in the, the back end, basically. Okay. And they have uh, .NET clients they'd like to write in the front end. And the fact that uh, there's sort of this parallel universe in terms of your basic low-level plumbing of how you would construct your application, uh, they, they really like that synergy there. In particular, yeah. in terms of you can go buy one of the you know, many books that are out there in Spring and basically translate the word bean to object, and you <laughs> basically have documentation for your uh, Spring.net IOC container. There's one for Reflector. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's actually one thing that uh, we used to, I think, a lo- uh, great success was putting the Spring.java code base through the uh, JLCA, uh, Java Language Conversion Assistant, which... Uh, very useful in, in the porting effort. Okay. Hey, Don, there's a new song there for the, uh, for the band, the JLCA. I was just thinking the same thing. Were you really? Yes, I was. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I fell off the, the line for a few minutes there. Um, did, did you guys talk about uh, Pico versus Spring versus Nano versus... No. So, so I'd love to find out what, what the, the long-term strategy is for having, you know, N of these as opposed to one of them? I don't think hmm. there's a, a plan per se, right? People will choose and use what they think is, is most appropriate, I guess, is, you know, uh, Ted was indicating people, uh, you know, pick the framework that's most suited for them. But, you know, the, the sort of synergy, I guess, that uh, Spring has, which the others don't, are the sort of vertical stack of providing transaction management, all these enterprise-like features, whereas things like... Uh, you know, Pico or HiveMind are really focused on the, the basic IOC functionality. Right. This is where you start to get into the, you know, the uh, thousand flowers blooming kind of thing, right? Where you just sort of 
plant seeds everywhere and the stuff that blooms, okay, this is clearly solving an itch that people have. So, you know, ultimately all of the frameworks, Nano, Pico, et cetera, will have that. If only one of them gets it, it's because that one guy ran into that problem and therefore it's not really a widespread thing. But even that, you know, that takes time for some of that stuff to emerge. And what we're seeing right now is people are saying, ooh, containers are cool, but what should the container have? Well, now all of a sudden we start to diverge in opinion. And the other nice thing is that it's very non-invasive, right? Meaning that you don't inherit from a spring API in order to benefit from, you know, the abstract factory. It's all based on reflection and, you know, a configuration file or if you want it programmatically as well. So in, in principle, switching is uh, not going to be a code change in as much as it is uh, going to be a configuration change of how you declare your objects and how they're related to the container. You know, sure. I'm not... I'm not sure how feasible that really will be because there's certain semantics that you expect out of the framework and you will write code differently based on those semantics. A lot of them have similar notions of life cycle that after creating it, please call this method that I tell you for initialization. Mm -hmm. And if you're a singleton, when the container dies, please call this destroy. So there's a fair amount of commonality, I'd say, between all of them that you just got to have if you're going to be an IOC container. But, you know, of course, there might be nuances, but if you really... I mean, to me, those details, right? The devil's typically in the yeah, details. I mean, we have a pretty large application. I would say maybe one, two, in some really obscure cases, actually inherit something from, uh, from uh, you know, the Spring API. Yeah, but, but have really you actually tried porting it? I think have you it tried porting it up... to a different one? Sorry? Have you tried porting it to a different one? I uh, did little simple sample applications, which were very trivial to do, but not a very big one. I mean, I don't. I, I freely admit, I don't know, Mark. I just one of the things. That oh yeah, uh, you know, and part of the, you know, just playing around with it and learning. Uh, there was a recent blog entry. I'm trying to remember the name of the person who uh, did a very nice write-up uh, comparing I think Mike Spile. Yeah. Thinking of Matt Rabel? No, no, I think it was Mike Spile. I think. Let me take a look. Well, while, you're, while you're looking, uh, a question from the chat room. Uh, I think for Mark, any chance for an AOP alliance type standard implementation for containers? happening? Well, the um, AOP Alliance uh, API, we, we uh, ported to .NET. It's part of the spring download. Um, so in that sense, that type of API that exposes how you would do you know, AOP functionality is there. I don't know if that answers the question, but uh, okay. we took from that API basically uh, the structure in which we would form uh, doing the AOP uh, implementation. Okay. We'll find out. Trying to find that uh, blog entry. I would be kind of interested, you know, Don, I don't know how much you can talk about Indigo, but I'd be kind of curious as to how much of Spring will make its way into Indigo or vice versa. Well, I mean, you know, with Indigo, we try not to impose a lot of policy on folks. Um, in general, you can load us up in any app domain. So we don't have the same characteristics that uh, you know a lot of EJB containers um, or even ASP.NET has, where you know we impose a, a particular process model, a particular app domain management policy. You know, pretty much with Indigo, you just you know load a DLL in your app domain and start using it. So in that respect, I think the, the there's less of a obvious need for something like Spring. Um, you know, we we at various times in the the product cycle have gotten more or less enamored with you know, lots of use of interception. There is obviously a messaging pipeline. 
you can obviously wire yourself in at the obvious places, but you know how dominant that's going to be in terms of people using this stuff. I, I'm I'm not convinced it's uh, the you know it's where everybody wants to be. Well, it seems to me that um, at least you know I know more of the details of how things get implemented on the, on the Java side. I'd say, but um, you know instead of inheriting from a base class in order to get you know manage transactional ability. One could use an aspect to inject that same code. Basically, the code has to live somewhere. It's just a matter of how it gets there. Well, sure. And and in Indigo, actually, on this platform, you don't get transactions by inheriting from anything. Um, if you look at .NET 2.0, which is the version we're shipping next year, we spent a lot of uh, energy getting the transactions implementation um, really well integrated with the runtime, the the programming models. That people use um, the the existing kind of legacy that we've got with things like DTC and Com Plus, and in .NET 2.0, if you want to program with transactions, you just write a block inside of a method where you use a using statement, which basically sets up a lexical scope. And inside that lexical scope, you have a transaction, and when you leave the lexical scope, you don't. And so we we don't impose a lot of the the kind of the heavyweight stuff that. EJB and, and to a degree Complus. Uh, well, you had to inherit from service component in .NET at least. Uh, that was the old days. Yeah. Don't that, I thought Don? Don't we have a service domain thing in .NET 1.1 right now? Yeah, in fact, if you've got .NET 1.1, which is the Everett release, which we shipped in 2003, we have this thing called service domain, which which is kind of the, one of the inspirations for where we went with transactions, which allows you, again, to just set up as a block inside of any method call without any derivation man, uh, mandate. You know, I want this range of instructions to be protected by a transaction. Just so happens in .NET 2.0, we were able to do a lot of engineering to make the implementation um, a lot faster and um, require less additional gunk to get loaded into your process. But, but isn't the issue then still of you know, demarcation? For example, if you had one business you know, method that you wanted to start and stop a transaction around, and that was in the code where you had used that using statement, but now, for example, you wanted two business methods to be within the same transaction, You'd have to move code around as compared to... Yeah, certainly our experience from Complus was that, you know, it was the developer who really wanted to demarcate transaction boundaries, not the admin. No, I, I agree with you that as developer, there's no sort of mythical admin guy monkeying with uh, transactions, but still Lord, having that flexibility to, to not make a code change. Uh, sure, but part of the way we set up the lexical blocks is they can effectively inherit a transaction from the, the causal uh, call path. So, you know, if, if A calls B and B sets himself up with mm-hmm. the appropriate kind of block, he'll inherit the transaction of A, mm-hmm. similar to the way it works with EJB or with Complus. Right. But without the imposition of this kind of, you know, forcing you down a particular container or framework model, it's basically, you know, it's a line of code and you get a transaction. Don, a question for you from the chat room. How do we handle the catching exceptions and rollback with a using block? Just with a try-catch? How do you do the... Yeah, great question. Um... When you use the uh, the sys.transactions infrastructure in Widby, um, you basically use a using block, and you add a line at the end of the block that uh, causes the uh, that tells us that you that you made it, um, that the transaction is okay to to commit. And if you don't make it to the end, um, that is, if you leave the block through an abnormal termination, then uh, we obviously roll it back. It's very similar to the old set aboard set complete paradigm that people were used to from MTS. I think he was talking about Indigo, though, the thing that you were talking about with the, with the using block and the lexical... Oh, well, you context. can use exactly what I just said inside of Indigo, right? They're, they compose just fine. 
Okay. In addition to that, on an Indigo service, you can mark a method as um, having that that lexical block set up for you automatically. Okay. So you can Kinda mark like a transaction. Auto-complete. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so in that case, it works like autocomplete from Complus. Sweet. Yeah, for those interested, I found the reference. If you go to shrinkster.com 27J, that was the uh, blog that compared the various uh, Java-based IOC containers. Great. Isn't Shrinkster awesome? I think it's yeah. getting hammered, though. It's getting, oh, it's it's getting a little slow. So I have a question for, for Ted and Mark and, and for Carl, too, I guess. Uh, I recently read this paper by Richard Monson-Heifel, who obviously made his uh, name writing EJB books for O'Reilly. Um, and he wrote this wonderful report called J2EE, A Standard in Jeopardy. And in it, the, what was interesting was he actually predicted or he called to the large vendors, basically IBM, saying you should just dump this J2EE thing and adopt the open source containers um, and that the future is really spring and hibernate. Did you, any of you guys read that? No, no, I'd be interested to read it, though. I didn't read the paper. I, I'd, I'd heard that he you know, said something to that effect. Part of the thing, too, you have to be a little careful with Richard now because now that he works for... Gartner? Gartner Gart, Gart, or somebody else. <laughs> he works for Burton. Burton, oh. that's right. You know, he's, he's definitely in a different position now than he, is, than he was like a year or two ago. Uh, but I think in some respects, you know, some of the vendors have, you know, IBM, have already started to do some of that stuff in the sense that they have begun to adopt more and more of the open source frameworks as part of their their offerings, right? WebSphere, but, but has WebSphere decided to co-op? I mean, obviously they they've they've spent a lot marketing their Linux involvement, but has IBM um, adopted Hibernate or Spring in the WebSphere? Not, not Hibernate or Spring, but they have adopted Axis as their web services stack. But, you know, I've heard that they, that was the original plan, but they've diverted, and it's no longer the Axis code base inside of WebSphere. I hadn't heard that. M- maybe, I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I freely admit I don't know. I, I, I never there's even probably heard. always a place for, for standards, I suppose, people who want that assurity of, you know, compatibility from all the previous EJB releases. But to a large extent, it's true that you could... Uh, just make an EJB3 sort of pseudo, you know, compatible release very easily using uh, Spring and Hibernate. And um, some things I I question the use of the annotations they have explicitly saying at inject instead of just relying on traditional setter methods or properties to, to, you know, express that dependency. This is the problem we face right now in the Java community is that we, you know, if we did that, we would be leaving seven years of production systems in the dust. And oh, yeah, yeah. even if the vendors bought off on the idea, the people who bought from those vendors would just be up in arms. Java Plus. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, right? That's, that's what starts to come to mind is, ooh, maybe we should just start over. And well, you know. do that, you can't do that. When you're a single vendor, like a Microsoft, right, if IBM becomes the dominant vendor in the Java industry, which is a very possible scenario, the I way it happened already. Right Was that? I thought it already happened. It's getting there. It's getting right now. IBM owns something like forty percent of the J2E market, you know, which basically says the EJB market. Yeah. Um, and I think BEA has something like twenty-five percent. They used to be at like thirty and thirty. If I was a business manager listening to this conversation, I'd be shitting bricks. <laughs> no, I don't think you do that. I, I really don't because the numbers overall, at least the numbers that I'm hearing in terms of J2E and, and .NET. Uh, 
projects as a whole are remaining relatively stable against one another. Yeah. Um, but certainly, you know, your choice of vendors within the J2E community is, has always been shifting around. Yeah. I mean, it, there has never been a place where one guy, you know, from one year to the next had the same percentage market share. Yeah. And, of course, you get the whole open source question. How do right. you track whether or not somebody is a JBoss licensee? Because they just, you know, just because they downloaded it doesn't mean that they're a licensee anymore. Don, a question for you from the chat room. There are folks speaking on behalf of Microsoft, Connected Systems Roadshow, for example, uh, that are telling developers OOAD is dead. I think that's coming from Indigo team with reference to SOA. Is the new? Is this the new Microsoft view? Is there a concurrence in the Java world? Wow, interesting. Um, well, so... Certainly, I think OO is done. I think that the the you know people have figured it out. Um, it's taking a long time for OO ideas that were formed in the '80s and to a lesser degree in the '90s to really become mainstream. You said OOAD in quotes. What is that? Uh, that would probably be object-oriented analysis and design. Development, I guess. Oh, I've never heard that that particular acronym. Yeah. I always heard it as OO app uh, analysis and design. Yes, that's what analysis I assume too. Okay. Yeah, I think people use all kinds of different methodologies and, and conceptual systems for, for thinking about how they're going to structure their software. Yeah. Um, OO is one way to do it. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it's not dead, but I think that, you know, it's a fairly well understood area. And if you look at, you know, kind of as a technology provider, you know, people are kind of solidifying, you know, the, the state of the practice. Um, I think that, you know, the services stuff is huge. Um, there's a lot of uh, opportunity for innovation. Um, and certainly when we think about building systems where we don't have autonomous uh, or we, we don't have atomic deployment, yeah. um, you know, the, the versioning characteristics we get when we use messages and protocols is better. Um, but I don't think it, it, it means that objects are going away. It just means that you know, they don't get as much attention because right. people understand them. Right, right. Look at it this way, Carl, right? Procedural-oriented programming, the world of C. Right. Is it dead? Is it yeah. gone? No, yeah, I understand. Yeah, just like Don said on the last .NET Rock show he was on, Calm isn't dead. It's done. It's, it's gone as far as it's going to go, and you use it, and there you go. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, just, the 10 applications that are communicating to each other, you know, in an SOA environment, are still going to be written in old fashion. Right. It's just Maybe. not the newest new thing. So speaking of SOA, Don, do you know of uh, any large-scale SOA projects out in the real world that have been done or are being done? Oh, I think people have been building systems this way for a while. Um, yeah. You know, we have new language to describe, you know, the kinds of things we're building. But, you know, folks who've been successful with message-oriented middleware have been doing a lot of these ideas yeah. You know, for a good 15-plus years. So. They've just been... Yeah, there's a lot of overlap in you know, the EAI space, which is okay. where I spent a lot of my time. It's just a lot of standardization now, but a lot of the uh, the concepts, the needs are, are and, very uh, much and the same. don't forget the ESBs. The ESBs are also, you know, another name for the same thing. The yeah, Enterprise right. Service Bus guys, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, look, we're, me we're sending messages back and forth. They're written in some format. Right. You're going to, you know, localize them. You're going to import them on when you bring receive a message. You're going to linearized to them when you send it, you know, big deal, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, it's fascinating that people like to, you know, 
put lots of uh, you know fancy language around it. But at the end of the day, you know, we're just slinging bites around. Well, I don't know if you the heard. Thing that's Clem- so funny. The thing that's so interesting about the whole message, you know, interest in messaging now, is that this is what we were doing back in the you know the late eighties, early nineties. And you you go back and, and in this case, for me, the eye opening was reading transactional processing by Gray and Reuter. And they talk about how RPC was created as a way simply to avoid having to deal with the pain of marshalling fee structures from one platform to the next. That's all that was really intended to do. Mm. And we just went hog nuts wild with the idea of RPCs in general, when realistically it was never intended to hide the fact that messages were being passed. Is that, a, be- is that a West Coast term, hog nuts wild? Uh, yeah, I just made it up. Oh. Yeah, it's kind of interesting if you look at, you know, .NET Remoting was a really interesting historical point because it was effectively an RPC system that really teased apart things like how does the stack frame get turned into messages? How do messages get turned into bytes? Um, And if you walk through the .NET Remoting architecture, whether or not you're ever going to use it in a real app or not, um, it's actually a really fascinating tour through a lot of the ideas, and, and it, it's a really interesting uh, uh, dissection of those ideas. Mm-hmm. That's, a lot one of area, that's one area where um, I think uh, uh, EGB was very late to catch on in terms of integrating uh, message support into the EGB spec happened relatively late. Oh, that, that, was, that was a travesty. That was a disaster. I mean, and, and, you know, the fact that they didn't put that in until the 2.0 release was just a crime against humanity. Hey, let me ask you guys a question. I mean, I don't know how much Mark has had exposure to this, but at least had and done. BizTalk, the newest BizTalk, uh, different than the original versions that we've seen with, you know, the kind of stuff that they were doing. What's uh, what's cool about it? And, you know, really, I mean, an objective view. What's cool about BizTalk lately? Don, you want first crack at this? Oh, I thought you were asking Mark. I'm sorry. No, I, actually, I don't have much experience, so I think... Uh... Yeah, go ahead, Don. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the biz talkers were, uh, you know, ha- have always been um, fairly forward-thinking. And, uh, you know, when I look at BTS 2004, which is the release they did uh, most recently, you know, th- there's some really interesting stuff there. For me, the, the biggest point of interest is the fact that, you know, the the control flow is done in a declarative fashion that's decoupled from the typical development process. Um, if you think about it, when you write an Xlang script in BizTalk, it's like you're writing a script, right? You're writing in a fairly high-level language. Um, it's a language that those guys have just tooled the snot out of. I mean, if you compare it to, like, writing a VB program, right. it makes VB look like assembly language. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the, the fact that, you know, the, that, that, that hard distinction between, you know, kind of the domain expert working in a very high-level language versus the quote-unquote systems programmer working in a relatively low-level language, I, I kind of like that, that model. And I, I used to really like that model back in the 90s when it was C++ versus VB6. Um, and you're kind of seeing that happening again now in the BizTalk world where, you know, the, the quote-unquote systems programmers are working in C-sharp, which is a fairly low-level, compiled, opaque language. And then you've got this much more dynamic, transparent language, which is Xlang. Um, and, you know, that's much more approachable to a lot of folks. So I think that stuff's really good. The fact that not only is the language relatively approachable, you know, largely because of the tooling, also the fact that the execution um, has a lot more, um, you know, runtime support than typical managed code has on the CLR. The fact that I can take a running program, freeze-dry it, 
and then reactivate it on a different machine um, without any change in app semantics. So, yeah, that's a thing that people want. And, yeah. um, you know, that, that stuff I think is really great. And I think you'll see that stuff become much more mainstream and part of the core platform over time. Certainly on the Indigo team, we look at that stuff and say, yeah, that'd be great stuff to have. So, Okay. Ted, have you got much experience with it? With BizTalk, no. Um, I haven't spent a hell of a lot of time with it. Um, you know, to be very honest, you know, one of the things that happens to you when you start writing and talking and speaking is you end up in you know, doing a lot of writing and talking. Yeah, right. Not a whole lot of, you know, getting down and grungy with stuff. So BizTalk is one of those things I haven't gotten down and grungy with. But I'm in the same boat. I look at BizTalk, you know, 04, and I've talked with some folks who have gotten down and grungy with it. And, I, and a buddy of mine, uh, who's just recently written a class for it, has, uh, he said, basically, you look at BizTalk and you say it's one big messaging engine. And I think if you look at, you know, I'm going to uh, send out a book reference here, the uh, Enterprise Integration Patterns book by Gregor Hopi and Bobby Wolf. Awesome book. I mean, ignore the title. It's all about messaging. What's it's the title again? You, Enterprise Integration Patterns. Part of the uh, Martin Fowler series, the black and red okay. uh, hardbound series. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, no, but I'm just writing it down so I can get a link. Oh, yeah. The Addison Wesley Signature Series. That's it. Yeah. That's uh-huh. the name of the series. Okay. And the signature happens to be Martin Fowler's. In this okay. case, right. Right, 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 right. Um, and, and that book is, is you know, it's, it's got to be like 35, 40-some-odd different patterns regarding messages and all the various things you can do with messages. You read this book, cool. and you instantly become a convert to the beauty of messaging as opposed to the relative crudeness of a traditional RPC. Right. If you're at eaipatterns.com. Is that the uh, URL? Uh, yeah, so the website for the book. Or... Okay. Yeah. I think there's actually some content on the website that's not in the book. So they've been they've been playing. Yeah, the book used to be on the website long before there was a book. Right. EAIpatterns.com, you said? EAI? Yeah, EAI. Okay. Enterprise Application Integration. Okay. Anyway, it's it's you know, it it really sort of transforms your worldview in many respects. And I think BizTalk, you know, from 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 what I've heard, from what I've seen, from what I've read, it's sort of true to that to that model where it really is a question of passing messages around and you know, frankly, when you start talking about application workflows and so forth, that's that's really what people want is opportunities to send this from here to there, and it'll sit there for a while while it gets operated on in some fashion before it goes to this other location. And that is technically that is the definition of workflow. Right. What do you think about the the drag droppiness of BizTalk? You know, that part I don't care so much about, truthfully. Yeah. And I, I you know, I know that that there's been this this sort of holy grail since, you know, the very, very early days right. of, you know, we want to get non-programmers to be able to write systems. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe this go-around, they might actually have something, but I'll admit I'm skeptical. I mean, I still remember when VB3 shipped and people said, oh, cool, now we can have managers writing right, code. Right, Secretaries, yeah, I think yeah. I think that never happens. I've seen... Uh, variation of this product uh, through TIBCO over the years, integration management, how business works, and so on. And I think uh, Gregor as well came up with a term for them, doodleware. Do you... <laughs> but a lot of times they just end up uh, people making yeah. uh, doodles with them and not really doing uh, what they should be Do doing. Do you think it'll ever happen? Any of you guys ever happen that a business person will be able to go up to it, walk up to a computer and more or less have a conversation with it and ching, 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 spits out 
the perfect uh, what was that what was that again sounds too mechanical I think I saw that in Star Trek Carl Franklin ladies and gentlemen he'll be all week be here all week get the chainsaw impersonation Sorry. They're never boring the, on the .NET Rock show. <laughs> I had to no, do the I, chainsaw. I, you know, to a certain degree, Carl, I hope they never do because it means yeah. we're all out of a job. Well, of course, but, I mean, it's, you know, every once in a while you got to think to yourself, well, the rate machines are growing in intelligence and layers and, you know, it's going to happen someday, don't you think? Well, let me ask you this. When's the last time you walked up to a carpenter, a plumber, a drywaller and told him what you wanted in terms of building your house? Oh, yeah, but the tools haven't changed in hundreds of years. And the tool, oh, they our, haven't? Our tools are changing. They haven't and changed more, in hundred okay, years. Okay, okay, okay. The rate of change is significantly different. The rate sure. of change but I mean, in technology. But, I mean, fundamentally, right, the job is still the same, to take all these basic building blocks or take the people who know how to manipulate those building blocks right, and I know, put but it if together you have, in some coherent fashion. But if you have robots that do everything and you just go, bip, 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 and they do it, you know, now you have a significant tool change. Well, you guys also, I mean, there are modular homes still that get put together out of, you know, four or five large pieces. And the amount of labor that goes into that is, you know, minuscule compared to, you know, a carpenter building a home from a set of blueprints. Yeah, but the Amish have been building barns in a day for a hundred some odd years. You, you can't sa- tell me it's just a question of the tools. So, Ted, are you saying you, you, you take an Amish approach to technology? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm saying that, you know... I'm, I'm just saying kidding, that buddy. when you know, really when you know, and it's very clear in everybody's mind what it is you're building, you yeah. can build a barn in a day. Yeah. But the thing is, nobody wants the plain barn, right? right? Nobody wants just the plain vanilla what the vendor is selling. People want customizations. People want you to tune it to their particular business, right. to their particular needs. I mean, this is why, for example, we never saw really a server-side component market, yeah. right? Despite the fact that both sides tried so hard. You know, both the both the Microsoft side and the and the Java side tried so hard to get this notion of VB like controls, VB like components. You could just drop in, right? Sun spent a lot of time talking about your accounting being, and you had application assemblers, people who just took these off the shelf things I, and dropped them into their backend. Dude, and it all I, just I, I agree with you that it hasn't happened yet, and many attempts have been, you know, many attempts have been made and failed. But but someday, don't you think? I don't. I don't think so, Carl. You don't because think so. What's accounts receivable to you is different from accounts receivable to me. Oh, sure, I know, but I mean, if the logic and the discernment is is you know in there, and you know, who knows? I, I don't. Think I think so. some I think some, it, some problems, things like BizTalk and business work, I think have really reduced to to a much smaller time scale. Certainly, for example, if you want to integrate uh, PeopleSoft with uh, another billing application, they both have very well defined schemas now on both sides and can really, in fact, drag and drop in and do a significant amount of integration that uh, with custom coding would have taken a long time to do. How about you, Don? Do you have a uh, – you want to make a projection about the future before, after you're dead, you know? Oh, look, I think that, um, you know, the, there's obviously a lot of demand for people who don't have the attention span to program in C-sharp or even modern-day VB. Um, to be able to build software, or at least customize software. And, you know, most of software is integration. I mean, you know, very few people get to write all new code. Um, almost right. all of software is, you know, bringing, you know, yesterday's legacy into make it tomorrow's. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, there, there's obviously going to be a lot of activity in this space, you know, all, all across the industry. Um, 
I definitely think the the vendor who can figure out or the open source project leader um, who can figure out how to tap into that, you know, um, pool of technically savvy but not programmer-focused folks who want to just solve problems with their computers, you know, that that's like a killer uh, app. And, right. you know, if someone can do it, that's great. And certainly, you know, there's no shortage of people here trying to solve that problem. I know there's no shortage of people at IBM trying to solve the same problem. And, you know, hopefully somebody will come up with, uh, you know, the right combination of, um, you know, abstractions, concepts, tools, standards too, right? Blah blah blah. The standard and standards too, like the standards of policy and and security, and you know the the SOA standards. You know, if you if you have System A, you know, written up to standard, and System B written up to standard, you know, where to a certain extent uh, the applications can explore and sort of reflect the policies and and act accordingly. I mean, isn't that a step towards, you know, total automation someday? I'm not saying yeah, that we're there. I, I, I don't look at, at the, the web service protocols as being um, the primary enabler. I mean, yeah, certainly we're not they're there. one of many factors. But it's getting, you know, it's getting yeah, there. A really the, goal, the goal has been the same. I mean, even, even Corba with dynamic discovery was supposed to be able to do that. Right. Yeah, a really interesting technology to look at is this thing called MIIS, which is Microsoft Identity Integration Server. And it's just this BizTalk-esque environment for folks who do directory work and identity management work. And, you know, you can do a ton of damage with that thing without writing lots of real programs. Hmm. And it's really targeted at, you know, kind of the IT pro, not the, you know, Ted Newards of the world. Hmm. But, uh, you know, it, it's actually, uh, you know, it, 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 I look at that and I think, hmm, there are things that could be done. And, you know, I'm sure that there are other ones out in nature as well. It's just I happen to be familiar with that one. So, just, you know, I think people want to go after that market. Yeah. And it's not a bad – you're not, you're not hurting humanity by enabling people to control their computers. I mean, it's kind of right. the whole purpose of software after right, all. Right. There's an interesting book that just came out, Carl, you know, along sort of this – what some of the folks at Microsoft think is the next generation called Software Factories. Mm-hmm. This is Keith Short, who is uh, – I think he's part of the team system – uh, project at Microsoft. At least he was when I interviewed him for the server side. He still and it's, What's that? He still is. He still is, okay. Um, and it's just this notion of, you know, being able to sort of churn software out at sort of a higher level, um, being able to, to sort of move up the abstraction stack one more time, yeah. you know, and, and get to that point of, of, you know, being able to do this. And I admit he's got a compelling argument um, you know, I like I said, I remain skeptical that we'll ever get there. I think what happens is as the you know as the factories get larger, the uh, the skill of the workers just has to get stronger, and that to some degree is his point that you know machining has made it such that people don't you know screw together computer cases by hand. A robot does that, but somebody has to maintain the robot, and somebody still has to sit down and, you know tell the robot what to do. Yeah. It just means that we get smarter as an industry. Right. And, you know, I made this point before. I think it was on Rory's blog. Then you, you echoed it too, Ted, that the day that, you know, the business person that hires us programmers can walk up to a machine like an ice cream vendor and say, I want this, that, and the other thing, and it, you know, and it spits it out. We're, we're done, man. 
<laughs> but I don't. I, I really don't know that that's ever going to happen because somebody's still going to have to, you know, write oh, the sure. ice cream machine and get that to work. Of course, so of course. The, the definition of the problem will change. We but, will still have work to do. But this, but this industry, of course, has a history of of innovating ourselves out of jobs. You know what I mean? Oh, it seems to be growing. No, I, I completely disagree, Carl. Do you really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, we basically just reinvent the same crap every ten years. Yeah. The, I think the, what's interesting, though, is, is kind of this, you know, this post-bubble uh, mentality that we actually have to deliver real value to humanity um, because they're just not going to keep paying us insane salaries to uh, you know, keep adding in direction to problems. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's an important lesson there. And um, you know, I think people, you know, there will always be technical jobs. There will always be jobs in software. But sure. I think that increasingly you're going to have to have some kind of domain expertise other than Right. You know, design patterns and programming languages and operating systems. The uh, I, case in point, um, I'm teaching some guys at CarMax this week. They came up to my class, and a lot of them weren't developers. They 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 had the business experience and they understood the business model. They understood the domain, and then they became programmers. Just in in the IT department, went specifically recruiting in all these other departments where they found people who really understood the business. And they train them as programmers. So, you know. Yeah, for for very complex domains, that could be. A, right. Well, I mean, I was I was just consulting for a gas and oil company out in Denver, and they were talking about how they've been building this, you know, gas and oil object domain, and they've been working on it since 1993. And it's, I mean, it puts anything that any object programmer has ever done to shame. I mean, it's just insane what they have to deal with and how they have to deal with it and so forth. Right. And I think that's exactly the case, that, that we as programmers, you know, we got lazy for a long period of time, and we got to a point where we said, look, if it's not in the spec, I don't have to do it. And what that did is that basically, you know, convinced a lot of business managers that we were unreliable. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't be trusted to get what they wanted done right or to have their best interests in mind. And so there's been this search, you know, for all sorts of different ways. Um, you know, to a certain degree, if projects are going to fail, people are looking for ways to fail more cheaply. And Don, <laughs> I think, nails it right. We need to, you know, we as programmers need to take it on ourselves to say, my job here is to deliver value. Right. How's the best way to do that? Is it using .NET? Is it using Java? Is it using COBOL? Right. And follow that path. You heard it here. Ted said to follow the path of COBOL. If that's the right answer to the problem, absolutely. I'll stamp my name to it. <laughs> I heard that quote more than once. Uh, from you guys don't haven't heard. You haven't heard what I did with Ralph Nader. So you know I can make you say anything in the editing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So it, we are way over time here. So maybe we should wrap it up. So before I let you go, why don't I go around to the three of you guys and just uh, give you a chance to to plug what you're doing working on and uh any calls to action mark yeah well i'm obviously uh plugging spring.net the uh, url is uh springframework.net and um yeah, you should just check it out read the documentation and um hope you find the software useful okay ted what are you doing these days writing uh seminars lectures that sort of thing uh effective enterprise java just shipped seems to be doing fairly well um so if anybody's looking for I'm going to come in and talk to you about how to build enterprise applications such that they can scale and perform and so forth, give me a call. Ted at newer.net. You do that? You 
like go to somebody's company and talk to them about how to scale? Believe it or not, Carl, yes. Yes, I have done it in the past and I will do it again. Wow, that's awesome, man. You should should hire Ted. There you go. Don, what are you doing these days? Uh, Let's see. Indigo uh, has a beta coming out next year and uh, I'm, you know, you know, closing it down some, uh, you know, final open issues on that stuff. And, uh, you know, looking beyond that. Do we have a date on Indigo Beta yet, Don? Yes, we do. Cool. <laughs> 20 questions? <laughs> Is it bigger than a red box? <laughs> Smaller than a car. Yes, there will be a beta next year. Okay. All right, guys. Well, listen, on behalf of myself, and uh, Rory's not here, but I'm sure he would... He's really bumming that he's missing this, but uh, uh, I want to thank you guys for for coming on the show. And man, this was this was just an awesome conversation. I like I said in the beginning of the show, I feel seriously outclassed, and I just thank all of you guys for discussing things with us tonight. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Carl. All right. Hey, good we'll night, catch Carl. You. Good night, Don. We miss you, Rory. <laughs> <laughs> Oh!